Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Looking forward to the weekend, because for a change, we're recording before the weekend instead of after, because I get to dig another hole. Well, we used to always do it before the weekend, and then we moved it to after the weekend, but we've just gone back to a before the weekend for today, just to confuse everyone, including ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you digging for this weekend? Are you back on the pruning? Pruning's done, everything's out, so now it's uh, levelling, because my garden's on the slant, so that I can get a base down, so I can put a, sh a shed on it because you know this is this is shed top this is shed cast shed hour yeah <laughs> I, I i tend to say uh, every week that we're not here to talk about sheds we're here to talk about aws but actually if you're a regular listener to the podcast you'll know that's simply not true we probably talk about sheds um, as much as we talk about anything else i was once bought a book actually called men and sheds because i uh, lived in a house like you john and i i think at, at my peak i had four sheds in that particular house which most of my friends found rather amusing um, so I thought it would be amusing to buy me the Men and Sheds book. I must dig that out, and uh, perhaps I can share it with you. It'll be an interesting read for you. Well, this is going to be number three that I'm putting up, and technically one of them isn't a shed. It's one of those, like, plastic storage boxes, but it's, like, mm. six and a bit foot tall, and it's not quite a shed, uh, but it's like a storage unit thing. I'll allow you to call that a shed. <laughs> it's got shed things in it. It's got the lawnmower in it. If AWS Outpost can be considered as cloud, your plastic storage box can be considered as shed. Uh, anyway, that's oh, a nice segue, that. nice segue back into the world of AWS because the primary purpose of this podcast is not to talk about sheds and gardening. It is to talk about AWS news. Um, so once a week, um, I uh, curate a list of AWS news as I share in my AWS News Roundup newsletter. Then John and I handpick a su subset of those articles which we would like to talk to you about. So we have a, such a similar set of articles this week. The first one um, is on the AWS Compute blog, and it's entitled Scaling an ASG, an auto-scaling group, using target tracking with dynamic SQS target, or with a dynamic SQS target. I nearly got the title out without messing it up. Um, but, um, yeah, tell us, tell us more, John. Uh, why might one want to scale an auto-scaling group uh, using target tracking with a dynamic SQS target? Just for something to do on a Friday afternoon. So, yeah, fun, fun topic, this one. So what most people think of when you think of an auto-scaling group is then a target group and load balancers, yeah, because you're scaling a website to meet demand. What you can also do, however, with scaling is run asynchronous worker processes. You see this a lot more in like the Rails community and that kind of thing because they're sort of used to that. And in AWS land, sort of the recommendation is where possible, do it through Fargate or do it through uh, Lambda because then you just don't have to worry about provisioning and things. But in some cases, that's not always possible. Maybe you can't get a Docker image small enough that Fargate or Lambda will work with it. Maybe um, it's prohibitively expensive to do it with Fargate for one reason or another. Uh, maybe you've already got this set up with servers and you're just kind of in that lift and shift phase, but you want to take advantage of the scalability of the cloud still which is absolutely a thing that you should be doing. So you can use this to process asynchronous jobs based on the demand of the job. 
the common example is something like processing user-generated content, right? You need to validate that there's not anything that breaches your terms of service. You might want to run AI against it, um, put it somewhere, do tags on it, all those kinds of things. So the job is, you know, service comes in, we're looking at a, at a particular task. We've got a whole queue of these queued up and rather than things just sitting there and churning away and it kind of backing up and backing up and backing up, you have a, a target that says when you get to 100 jobs deep, 500 jobs deep, whatever, AN number, bring me another server on, bring me another server on so that those servers are pulling things from that SQS queue, processing them, and then grabbing the next one, and so on, and so on. So that when you get this big influx of things into that queue, you scale up to process the queue, and then you've processed that big spike, and then you scale back down again to your kind of your tick over level, if you like. What it's doing is it's, uh, I believe the term is smoothing the spike, leveling the curve, to use that old NHS analogy. Yeah. So um, yeah, the article goes on to uh, to talk about how to to build all of that. But I guess um, you need to know what good looks like. So um, it's got some lovely formulas in here, uh, how to calculate your BPI and your acceptable BPI, um, you know, the, uh, the backlog per instance and the acceptable backlog per instance. Um, I guess uh, you obviously need to know um, what good looks like in terms of how quickly you're going to be processing these uh, these batches of uh, of tasks. So. This was a lot more prescient until I think like within the last month, because very very recently you've been able to control the scalability, oh, not the scalability, the um, the number of lambda functions available concurrency um, based on the depth of an SQS queue. Yeah, that has only come on in the last couple of weeks. So for this particular workflow. Maybe this one isn't the best anymore, but like I say, up until very recently, this was sort of the best option. Yeah. I'm also and quite interested in, have they used the right icons, Carl? Well, I was just about to say, I've uh, scrolled down to the uh, diagram, which is more complicated than I thought it would be, uh, frankly, for uh, this solution, which sounded quite simple, uh, but it does seem to have more components than one might expect. Uh, just... Excuse me a moment. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, the only ones that look like legacy icons uh, are those uh, those metric ones, and I'm not sure they're actually service icons. So, um, you know, they are in the legacy uh, 3D style, uh, but I think I'd probably let them off with that because, uh, you know, the actual service icons are the, the current generation. <laughs> I'm annoyed that they've used the, the grayscale ones for most of it, apart from the SQS queue. <laughs> well, I suppose that's to highlight what the, uh, you know, and, and the uh, the ASG. They're both in colour, and that's what the article is about. So that's actually quite a, quite a clever way of highlighting the uh, the primary subject matter of the article, I suppose. Um, but we're straying into graphic design now, and as you know, we're only qualified to talk about AWS and Sheds. Um, so, uh, and let, power tools. <laughs> And, and power tools, yeah, or, or non-power tools, manual tools. Um, <clears throat> so um, let's move on. Uh, another uh, AWS blog post. We're heavy on the AWS blog today. Um, we've got another article from the AWS Compute blog, uh, and this one is about implementing reactive progress tracking for AWS step functions. 
Now, we all know, John, that you love serverless, uh, so I'm sure you're going <laughs> to wax lyrical about implementing reactive progress tracking for AWS step functions. I have to confess, I have not read this article in detail. I have no clue what it's all about. So I'm very keen to hear what you got to say on this one. So this is actually something that I wish I'd known about about 18 months ago because I solved or worked in a team that solved this exact problem, but we did it slightly differently. This is a very nice solution, but it's a bit of a funny one. So leading on from the previous topic about asynchronous workflow processing, one of the better ways of doing that is with serverless, particularly if it's like a low volume service, it's a new service, you don't want to have resources kind of spinning their wheels all the time. The problem with an asynchronous or a yeah, the problem with an asynchronous workflow is the caller of said workflow doesn't necessarily know when it's finished, but it might need the result of it when it's finished. Yeah, but why don't you make it a synchronous call then? Because otherwise you're just going to sit there kind of blocking things and spinning wheels and spending money when you don't necessarily need to. <coughs> Excuse me. The example I like to use again is with user generated content because your calling process is probably an app or a website or something and like the page abandonment time is what two three seconds so you want to be able to upload thing into bucket and then let the user go off and do something else rather than we're still processing this is going to take 15 seconds they're going to get bored and go away and that's just going to break things so put thing in bucket go away and let the user do something else we'll process this in the background it might take us a couple of minutes and the way we handled telling users that it was available through a progress bar at the time was by having a tracking table, Dynamo table, that the service would just poll every kind of 10 seconds or whatever to work out when it had finished or to work out kind of how many pictures had been uploaded, you know, one of 10, two of 10, whatever. This is doing it slightly differently. This is doing it through what's called a WebSocket API. We've spoken about these before, but a quick definition, a WebSocket API is it's like a continuous connection. Yeah, It doesn't have to be initiated by the client. It can be initiated by the server, and it just means that without all of the, the handshaking and all that jazz, data can move back and forth between server and client without having to reauthenticate and, and reconnect and all that. It's just a continuous connection. And what this basically means is through said WebSocket, the client can just be fed data. It's, it's not request response. It's, I've put this thing in here and I'm going to get fed the data, fed the data, fed the data so I know how far through this system I am. That's a much neater solution. It really is. It's a much neater solution to this particular problem. Cool. So now you know. I'm going to tell my ex-colleagues about it. Will you be using it? <laughs> No, no, I, I don't think you should tell them about it. I think, uh, <laughs> no, I will, because it will, it will give them an existential crisis. No, no, I think you should offer to consult for them. <laughs> I can rebuild this. You know that thing that I built? I've got a better one. Do you want, do you want it for some money? No, John, go away. Um, yeah. I can see uses well, sure with this. I'm sure they're probably listening to the podcast anyway, so they, they, they now know all about it. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Our two listeners. <laughs> No, that's me and you. <laughs> oh, dear. So you were going to say you can see uses. I can see uses for this. I don't have a particular use case for this right now because a lot of the serverless work that I'm doing for our clients at the moment is kind of time-driven um, rather than you know having a client that needs to sort of track things. But I can see a use for this, yeah. Cool. 
So let's move on to the next article and sticking with the AWS blog. Um, again, the AWS compute blog. Um, we've got an article on how to create custom health checks for your Amazon EC2 auto scaling fleet. Um, so uh, what can you tell us about this one, John? Why might you need to do that? So the example that they use in this is a custom health check based on um, a tag value on the instance to see whether it's passed or failed a compliance check. So that's kind of why you'd need to do it. They've sort of answered this. But let's start with some definitions and some why this is different and interesting. And then, excuse me, what did I eat for lunch? And then we can go from there. So normally there's one of two different types of health check that you use when evaluating the health of an autoscaling fleet. If there's a load balancer in front of said autoscaling fleet, you like to use a load balancer health check and what that's doing is the load balancer is sending requests to a port to a path and expecting a known status code and a known response you know 200 okay uh, with a response of alive or whatever you know you can do ec2 status checks which is just the servers there and it's available or you can do custom status checks which are neither of those and it's kind of based on more or less whatever you like within reason based about the server why would you want to do something other than ELB or EC2? Well, because maybe you're provisioning the instance as it comes up and it takes longer than you can configure the health check to wait for, for argument's sake. Or maybe it could come up in one of two ways and in some cases it will come up and it will be suitable to be used for certain processes and not for other processes. The example that they use here is a compliance check. So has the... As whatever process that you need to ensure has run, has it run? The last thing it does in that process is it updates the value of a tag to say, yes, I've, I've finished successfully. But by default, it hasn't. So that's kind of what you're using it for here, right? It's it's like an ELB, ALB health check, but you could use this in a world where you haven't got a load balancer in front of the scaling group. Like the first article, you know, it's something's being brought online to um, process a queue, and obviously you can't use an ALB health check there because there isn't one, so you use a custom health check to say, yes, I'm bootstrapped, now I can start processing. So what sort of processes, give, give us a, a real-world example of a type of process that you might be checking has completed um, in this Like I scenario. say, it's the bootstrapping, it's the, the, the init script, it's that I've come up and I've done the correct things that I was supposed to do, but I'm not listening for traffic on a particular HTTP port. Like I say, it's, okay. it's like with the first example, with the first um, article that we had where it was processing things off of the queue. So it would be that kind of thing. It's that I've come up, I've bootstrapped, I'm provisioned, now I can start reading from the queue, now you can mark me as healthy and not destroy me. Cool. So the article goes on to uh, describe how to do this. So if you actually wanted to, to go away and do this yourself, lots of code examples in the article, etc. So uh, well worth a look. <clears throat> so uh, moving on from the AWS Compute blog now, but not completely moving on from the AWS blog. Our next article is from the AWS News blog and uh, from your favorite purple haired uh, evangelist, <laughs> Jeff Barr. Um, telling us about some exciting new super powerful Graviton 3-based general purpose instances that have been launched, the M7G um, and memory-optimized R7G Amazon EC2 instances. So we're now on to the third generation of AWS's own silicon, Graviton 3, um, and uh, these new instance types 
um, have got some pretty crazy uh, specs um, as uh, listed in the table. There we've got the M7G instances going up to um, 64 vCPUs and 256 gig of RAM. And the R7G instances going up to 64 vCPUs and 512 gig of RAM. So uh, some pretty crazy performance um, from uh, individual instances. Um, why might you need that, John? What, what what might be the use cases for these new uh, these new Graviton three instances? Because you don't like money. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, those, uh, those yeah. Those M7G metals, I'm sure, are going to be pretty pricey. I haven't got the prices oh, yeah. to hand, actually, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 kind of sitting in the high-performance compute space. I don't know if... I think AWS might have some HPC instances anyway, but it sort of sits in the high-performance compute space. And what are you doing in high-performance compute? You're doing uh, 3D modeling and rendering in some cases. You're doing advanced AI and predictions. Um People predicting the weather are doing high-performance compute. No, I'm not suggesting that BBC Weather or the Met Office or, or whoever it does it in the States um, is using these instances. They have their own supercomputers. But it's it's that kind of world, you know. It's large amounts of data crunching, large amounts of numbers coming through, being processed and coming out the other end, which is, A, what these enormous instances are for, because they're enormous, and, B, what ARM Silicon is really good at, it's as a general performance CPU, ARM is no better than than um, 64-bit, 32-bit, x86, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's as a general, it's no better, and arguably in some cases, it's a little bit worse as a general performance compute. But for really high inputs, outputs, and maths-based problems, it's very, very good. There's a reason that um, graphics cards are used for this in normal normal computer systems because they run ARM chips and they have done forever. They do for donkey's years because I don't know if you remember, but a little while ago now, NVIDIA were in the news for trying to buy ARM, as in the people that don't make the chips, but, you know, like the licensing and that kind of thing. Um, and that was seen as a bit of a competition problem because... It would have been, um, but yeah. So there's a reason that, like Bitcoin mining and whatever, that uses that's done on ARM because it's very computationally intensive. So that's an interesting segue. If you see some of these in your account and you didn't put them there, they're mining Bitcoin for you, and someone <laughs> else is taking your money. Yeah. So speaking of money and uh, maths-related problems, I did just reach for the calculator there and the AWS price list. So the M7G metal um, in uh, US East Ohio region will set you back at $2.61 per hour, uh, which oh. if you left that on for a month, uh, you're looking at a bill of $1,880 a month. <laughs> so these are not the sort of instances that you want to just forget about in your account uh, unless you do have an enormous amount of money to burn. Um, and uh, if you don't want anybody standing up these instances in your account to mine Bitcoin, I suggest, uh, firstly, making sure that your security posture is good. Uh, failing that, at least get some budget alerts in place uh, <laughs> so that you know uh, when they start to uh, to spend that sort of money. Um, yeah, the obvious thing so, to do is set a service control policy at the org level to ban these instances yeah. types from being used. Yeah. You know, Unless you need them. Uh, in which case Unless, of course, you need them. them. If you need them, then you need them. But yeah. I would argue that 95% of workloads in AWS don't need these. So whilst yeah. they're cool and we can wax lyrical about them and we can nerd out about how cool the heart, the architecture is, put an SCP in to block them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and if you get in someone's way, you can always uh, you can you always can modify turn it the off policy, again. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's absolutely generally and veering away from the article a little bit there. That's generally something to, that um, people have come up against in historic terms, and that's why people are a bit reticent to do it now. But it's a lot easier to block something from happening and then get a request and say, I actually need this. Okay, cool. There you go. And then block it from happening again than it is to unwind an $1,800 bill. Hmm. The good news is, though, if you are caching your data in Sao Paulo, <laughs> they're not available. <laughs> because if they were available, they'd be even more expensive uh, in the most expensive AWS region. So, uh, yeah. London's more expensive than Ohio, isn't it? Or is it the same as Ohio? Because I know London's uh, a bit more than America's. I would imagine that uh, London is more expensive than Ohio. The price I gave you was for the default region, which is Ohio. Uh, but, uh, yeah, let's have a look. What was it? M7G. Um, yeah. Oh, not available um, in London either. So. Oh, um, no high-performance compute for uh, you financial shops then. Huh. No, but it is available in Ireland. Um, and it costs $2.91 an hour, uh, which is significantly more. Best part of three bucks an hour. That's, yeah. Uh, which is uh, over $2,000 a month. Uh, so there we are. Got to, uh, yeah, these, these, are not, these are not something to run up just to show your friends. Uh, you've got to have a, <laughs> a genuine use case. <laughs> oh, yeah, Absolutely. So moving on to our final article of this week, um, this particular article on the news stack is combining uh, something that we've spoken about uh, on a number of occasions um, on, on the Logicast podcast, sustainability and open source. Uh, the article is entitled AWS, why we su support sustainable open source. And uh, we've talked about the two things uh, in isolation before. Sustainability has been a regular thread of conversation on on the podcast, uh, and also uh, AWS's commitment to open source. I think we've touched on, certainly I've touched on it in the news roundup before, and I think we've touched on it in the podcast. Uh, but here we are combining the two uh, into sustainable open source. So what is sustainable open source, John? Um, I don't really know. It's a funny one because sustainability generally is just... If probably everyone knows what sustainability is right um but it's just making sure that you're not using resources that you don't need to you're turning things off your solar panel all that kind of stuff yeah and then the open source side of things is just development done in the open it's not anything too drastic it's just yeah you know it's just it's development done in the open sustainable open source i suppose is more talking about um developer sustainability rather than environmental sustainability because it's all fun and good at being an open source project but if your people are burning out yes okay um you, here's a common misconception actually about open source you could be paid to write open source code it's not altruistic particularly in and of itself it's just development done in the open right there's actually an open source record of a number of government uk government decisions around cloud and, and its usage available in their github just open source right so because it's open source doesn't necessarily mean it's free but it just means that the code's available doesn't necessarily mean that it's been worked on for free it just means that the code's available in the open so sustainable open source i guess is much more talking around developer sustainability not burnout no crunch time all of that kind of thing and they do um they the ethereal they like the cloud native computing 
foundation the kubernetes people i like to call them because that's kind of what they're well known for are quite good for this as well um because again yes it's all open source but people are paid to do it and they look after their people got it clear as mud so yeah no i think i might have got the wrong end of the stick with the title of the article actually because i don't think it's about sustainability at all um, no. although it could be but it's not it's about the sustainability of the open source movement um and uh, you know spreading the load between multiple contributors and so on and so forth um you know the article does go on to talk about some of the uh, the the well-known um open source projects that aws um contributes towards so uh, Things like Apache Airflow, Apache Cassandra, um, Java, Kubernetes—all things that we uh, that we hear and talk about on a regular basis. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, it's more about um, making sure that those communities are sustainable, rather than the products themselves uh, mm. contributing to uh, to sustainability. Um, but um, yeah, it is an interesting one because open source has had kind of three major phases and we're in phase three now. Phase one is sort of hobbyists and please make please pay attention to me. I'm desperately trying to be relevant. Phase two is and, and, and um, corporates not really trusting it. And phase two was mass adoption by the corporates of open source, like on mass to AWS of spoken about this in the in the article as well it's they have built huge swathes of their platform on top of open source or by running open source things for you like open search open search is open source and they are running it for you so they have made enormous oh, bash made enormous quantities of money and, and time has been spent on running and building and using open source and then phase three is please can we have some money so that we can actually keep doing the building that you're building on top of so I think that's kind of what this is really trying to drive at and really trying to get at is up until really very recently, it went from we don't care about open source, we'll build it ourselves to this is great, we don't have to build it ourselves to maybe we should probably think about paying these people for what they've done given that we've made $10 billion on it. Yeah, AWS has uh, suffered a lot of criticism for taking and commercializing a lot of these open source projects without really contributing back to it. So, um, you know, this is another article in that vein um, where AWS is trying to show how much they are actually contributing back um, to, to the community um, rather than just profiting from it. I don't know if this is a change of direction. Um, I don't think this is a change of direction. I think this is more doubling down on what they were doing. But there's definitely been a shift since kind of the CEOs of Amazon and AWS have sort of all moved around a bit. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I mean, to some extent, it's uh, just it's a bit of PR, isn't it? It's making sure that the, the critics are aware of what's going on or it's an answer to the critics to say, you know, you've made that criticism, you know, here's our, here's our version. Uh, here's it, our, here's our response. That, yeah, yeah. Here's our response that isn't a blog post title, titled Setting the Record Straight because that was yeah. terrible when they used to do that. That was awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think this does a good job of uh, of setting the record straight. So, um, <laughs> uh, so certainly attempting to do so. So, so that brings us to the end of the articles uh, for this week, um, and therefore to the end of uh, episode seven of season two of Logicast. So, we hope you've enjoyed listening um, to us waffling on uh, for another half an hour. Uh, and we'll be back next week um, with another episode of Logicast. Thank you, and see you next time. <laughs>